April 24, 1964, the little town of Socorro, New Mexico was quiet. Police officer Lonnie Zamora was not surprised. During the five years he'd been on the force, Socorro had almost always been quiet. When Lonnie spotted a local teenager speeding through town, he figured riding him up might be the biggest excitement of the day. Chase proceeded to the edge of town and beyond, out into the desert. Lonnie Zamora had no warning. He was about to leave his safe, secure world and enter the realm of the unexplained. What you just heard was a segment from the television program, Unsolved Mysteries. And what you just heard is partially where my love of the UFO topic originated. The case of Lonnie Zamora was featured on the December 1st, 1995 episode when I was 12 years old, and every time I watch it, I feel what I felt all those years ago. Shock, awe, intrigue, and amazement. Of all the words associated with the UFO phenomenon, the one that best describes the Lonnie Zamora incident is inexplicable. And that is why the incident is simultaneously one of the best examples of the UFO phenomenon, and also one of the most frustrating. No matter what explanation you favor, this incident offers tantalizing support. And yet, when we look at the incident as a whole, we cannot help but come away frustrated, as the incident itself stubbornly refuses to fit into our preconceived notions and defy explanation. This episode's going to be a long one, so we're going to keep this intro short. And with that said, I'm Rob Christofferson, and this is episode 14 of the Our Strange Guys podcast. On Friday, April 24, 1964, at 5.45 p.m., Sergeant Lonnie Zamora, a 30-year-old deputy marshal from Socorro, New Mexico, was traveling southbound on US-85, attempting to get into position to pull over a speeding car that had just passed him. As he reached the outskirts of the town, his attention was diverted from the speeder by a thin column of motionless, bluish-orange flame in the southern sky. He would later describe it as being shaped like a funnel or welder's torch, thinner at the top than at the bottom. Through the rolled-down window of his patrol car, Zamora also observed that the top of the flame was flat, and that he could not see the bottom of the flame as it was obstructed by a hill. At the same time he first observed the flame, he heard a loud noise that lasted approximately 10 seconds, which he described as a roar, not a blast, and not at all like a jet or a rocket, 
which he heard frequently on account of the nearby military base. The noise started higher in frequency and went to a lower frequency before it ceased altogether. Because the flame was in the direction of a dynamite shack owned by the mayor of Socorro, Zamora believed that the shack had exploded, and so he broke off his pursuit of the speeding car and went to investigate. While he was driving, Zamora could not fully observe the flame, but he did remark later that it appeared to be descending towards the ground, though he was clear that he could see no source for the flame at the top. As Zamora reached the edge of town, he turned off the paved road onto a rough gravel trail that went in the direction of the flame. The road started with a steep climb up a hill, which Zamora's patrol car had trouble negotiating, and he required two or three attempts before finally cresting the hill and continuing on. It was sometime during Zamora's attempts to crest the hill that the flame disappeared and the noise stopped completely. When Zamora's car finally made it over the hill, he pointed his car down the gravel trail, and it was only seconds before he sighted an object, which he initially believed to be an overturned car in an arroyo, roughly 80 feet in front of him. He could see two figures wearing white coveralls in front of the craft, one of whom appeared startled by the sudden appearance of Zamora's patrol car. Owing to the hilly nature of the area around Socorro, Zamora was only able to observe the figures for roughly two seconds before his view was obstructed by a hill. As he followed the rough trail, Zamora's view of the object and figures was obstructed for only approximately 30 to 45 seconds. And when the object again came into view, the figures were gone. Zamora followed the trail as far as he could and stopped his car only 100 to 150 feet away from the object. He parked his car at the edge of the arroyo, around 25 feet higher in elevation than the object, which was down at the lowest point. Now that he was stopped, and with his window rolled down, he could see that it was an egg or oval-shaped, dull, quote, aluminum white, not chrome, end quote, in color, and supported on girder-like legs, of which Zamora could see two from his position, extending out of the object. As Zamora exited his patrol car, he accidentally knocked the radio's handset out of its holder, and as he went to put it back, he heard two or three loud thumps coming from the direction of the object, which he described as possibly like an opening or closing door. Fixing the handset, he got back out of his car, and, unsure of what he was seeing, Zamora began to approach the object on foot. He had gone no more than 50 feet, when the object began to emit a familiar, loud roaring noise, just like the one he had heard when he saw the column of flame in the sky. As the volume of the noise increased, he saw smoke and flames emerge from the bottom of the object. The flame appeared to be the same blue and orange as the column of flame that had initially drawn him to the site. Believing that the object was going to explode, Zamora, a veteran of the Korean War, immediately threw himself to the ground and laid prone for a couple of seconds. When it became clear that the object was not going to explode, he got up and ran back towards his patrol car. He stated later that he was planning on taking cover behind his patrol car 
and that he occasionally glanced back at the object as he ran. While rounding the back of his patrol car, he hit his leg on the car's back fender, which sent him tumbling to the ground, losing his glasses and sunglasses in the process, and ending up away from his patrol car. And as he stumbled to his feet, he managed to make it another 50 feet past the car and just over the edge of the hill upon which he had parked. At this time, roaring noise gave way to a different noise, starting low then going to high, much like what Zamora had heard at the end of the noise as he approached the object, only in reverse. But after a second, the noise abruptly ceased. When Zamora turned around, he saw that the object was hovering silently approximately 15 to 20 feet in the air, roughly on the same level as his patrol car, or a little lower. He observed some kind of red markings on the object, which he variously estimated as anywhere from 1 to 3 feet in size, consisting of four separate markings, a half circle on the top, inside of which is an inverted V, inside of which is a vertical line, with a horizontal line underneath the three nested objects, though some later reports would describe it differently. The object hovered silently for several seconds, with no visible smoke or flame underneath, then moved away just as silently as it had hovered and in the direction of the dynamite shack that Zamora had initially believed to be the cause of the flame. Zamora continued to observe the object for approximately three minutes until it passed out of view over the horizon, covering a distance of roughly six miles during that time. As it moved, it gained and lost altitude as it followed the contours of the land, never reaching an altitude of more than 20 feet. Though the exact sequence of Zamora's radio communications is a matter of dispute, it is not in question that he immediately understood that what he was seeing was unusual. As the object moved away, Zamora ran back to his patrol car and attempted to get Ned Lopez, the radio operator on duty at the station, to see if he could see the object from where he was. However, due to unclear directions from an audibly excited Zamora, Lopez was accidentally looking toward the north, away from where Zamora and the object were, at the critical time when it would have been visible. Already fearing that he would be labeled a crackpot for what he had seen, Zamora requested that Sergeant Sam Chavez, a member of the New Mexico State Police and a friend of Zamora, came along to assist him at the site of the incident. Mere minutes after the object passed out of view, Chavez arrived on scene. Though he did not witness the object itself, he observed smoldering brush where Zamora indicated that the object had landed and that Zamora was perspiring heavily and had turned pale. When Chavez asked Zamora about his appearance, he said, Do I look strange? To which Chavez replied, You look like you've seen the devil. To which Zamora ominously said, Well, maybe I have. With Zamora looking on, Chavez began conducting what would be the first of many investigations into just what happened in that arroyo. They both went down to the location where the object had first been seen, where Chavez noted impressions in the ground, consistent with Zamora's account of an object resting on four legs, and they were pressed deep into the soft soil. 
The impressions were spaced roughly 13 feet apart and spaced in a roughed square pattern, though the spacing varied between each marking. They also observed that the brush directly under where the object had been, despite it continuing to smoke, was cold to the touch. Beyond examining the site itself and taking down Zamora's description of the events, Chavez also conducted an investigation of Zamora himself. Though the two men were friends, and while Chavez believed Zamora's account, Chavez understood that when word of this got out, Zamora would immediately be accused of faking the whole incident. Chavez searched his patrol car and found nothing that could be used to burn the vegetation or make the strange indentations and he observed no footprints or vehicle tracks leading to or away from the location of the indentations, which would be immediately visible in the soft soil if anyone had gone to or away from the site prior to Chavez and Zamora investigating together. Leaving the site, and knowing that something profoundly strange had occurred, Zamora went to report the incident to Polo Pineda, the chief of police for Socorro, but before he did so, he first chose to speak to his priest to discuss what he had seen. While he did this, Sergeant Chavez reported the incident to the nearby military base. At the same time, a report also reached the FBI in Albuquerque as well. Though whether the FBI heard about it via an overheard radio communication, was notified by the military or by Sergeant Chavez himself is a matter of dispute. No matter the sequence of notifications, an official investigation by the military and the FBI had been in motion. While Zamora and Chavez talked with Chief Pineda, Agent Burns of the FBI was on his way from Albuquerque, a 60-mile drive from Socorro, and notifications were working their way from the UFO reporting desk to local military personnel. Yes, in 1964, the military base did have a UFO reporting desk. The initial investigation of the site was conducted jointly by Captain Holder, commander of Stallion Site at White Sands, and Agent Arthur Burns of the FBI. Both men, along with as many men as Captain Holder could round up on such short notice, met in Socorro and traveled to the scene together. Less than two hours had elapsed between Zamora's sighting and when the military arrived to secure the scene. Consistent with what Zamora and Chavez had relayed to Chief Pineda, Captain Holder observed charred vegetation, some of which was still smoking, in the immediate area around where Zamora had sighted the object. They also observed that despite the smoke, the plants were cold. They also noticed that the burn patterns were unusual and not consistent with a rocket or jet having lifted off. They were sporadic, with some vegetation entirely unburned, and some only burned on a single side. One of the men had brought a Geiger counter, but despite extensively checking the scene and surrounding area, they determined that there was no unusual radiation present on any of the charred plants or anywhere in the vicinity of Zamora's sighting. Captain Holder and his team carefully documented four distinct indentations in the soil, 8 inches by 12 inches in size, 3 to 4 inches deep, in a roughly rectangular configuration, though not evenly spaced. They took detailed measurements and erected stone circles around the indentations. 
The investigators also made detailed measurements of the surrounding area, which would later be converted into detailed diagrams, clearly establishing the position of Zamora when he made his sighting. Agent Burns, Captain Holder, and their men took samples of the soil and charred vegetation, which would later be given to our UFO dad, Dr. J. Allen Hynek. The team also searched the surrounding area and could find no tire tracks or other markings in the area around where Zamora sighted the object. Beyond the indentations in the ground, observed and photographed at the location where Zamora saw the object, consistent with what Zamora and Chavez had said. There were several other lighter indentations in the immediate area around the larger indentations, including four circular points between two of the larger indentations, which the investigators speculated may have been a ladder descending from the object, and several footprints a bit further out from the object, which were observed to be smaller than normal for an adult. However, Beyond the four large indentations, investigators could not say with certainty that they were present before the military secured the scene, and these are absent from Zamora and Chavez's observations. After investigating the scene and interviewing Zamora, Chavez, and Lopez, Captain Holder and Agent Burns were satisfied that some physical object was present at the scene of Zamora's sighting, and that Zamora was truthfully reporting his experience. Captain Holder was also able to determine that no projects were operating at White Sands on the day of the incident that could account for what Zamora had seen, and further, that he knew of no craft that could replicate what Zamora had witnessed. This was particularly disturbing to Captain Holder. From the start, he'd assumed that what Zamora saw was a secret aircraft, likely operating out of White Sands. This is what Sergeant Chavez believed as well, and was the impetus for his report to the military. Having ruled out known local military projects, Holder reached out to nearby civilian and military radar facilities, but none had tracked any unknown objects during the time around Zamora's sighting. This would seem to point to a craft controlled by someone other than the United States, operating near one of the most important U.S. military bases. Establishing that something inexplicable had indeed occurred, Captain Holder and Agent Burns turned the investigation over to Project Blue Book, led by Captain Hector Quintanilla. Though Quintanilla himself would continue to be an active participant throughout the investigation, he himself remained at right field. Rather, he tasked his subordinate, Sergeant Moody, with representing Project Blue Book locally in the investigation. By this time, Project Blue Book was clearly being wound down, and it consisted of only five personnel, including Captain Quintanilla. And it is here that we come to what can only be called, quote, one heck of a coincidence. Sergeant Moody was already in the area. He was on temporary duty only 60 miles away at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque at the time. He was assigned to Project Cloud Gap, an only partially declassified project whose stated goal was to, quote, test the technical feasibility of potential arms control and disarmament measures, end quote. Why Sergeant Moody, who had been with Project Blue Book for some time, 
was on temporary duty with a project responsible for verifying nuclear disarmament is not stated in the available files. Sergeant Moody jointly conducted the investigation with Major Connor, the UFO reporting officer at Kirtland Air Force Base. Sergeant Moody and Major Connor traveled to the site of the incident a couple days later and interviewed both Zamora and Chavez separately and at length about what each man had seen and unsuccessfully canvassed the town for further direct eyewitnesses. In their analysis of Zamora, the investigators found that, quote, he would not be capable of contriving a complete hoax, nor would his temperament indicate that he would have the slightest interest in such. He was simply a cop on duty, relinquished one discharge of that duty, chasing a speeding car, for another which he thought was of more immediate importance, end quote. They further dismissed the idea that he had hallucinated the encounter, reporting that he did not drink and that he was physically healthy, and that his primary complaint about his encounter was that, quote, it did not allow him to give out his full quota of tickets for the day. They further concluded, quote, that Zamora saw a tangible, physical object under good daylight illumination and from fairly close range, at the closest, almost as little as 100 feet. From the beginning, it is apparent from the Project Blue Book files that they believed that they were dealing with a terrestrial object, and much of their investigative energy was directed towards locating which particular defense contractor or military branch was operating the craft in question. In particular, the Project Blue Book team quickly identified physical similarities between the object that Desmora saw and numerous craft known to be in development under the Lunar Excursion Module Program. The Project Blue Book archive is full of correspondence between Captain Quintanilla and various contractors trying to determine which project could have been responsible, but all responded that they could not be responsible. Additional time and effort was also spent in trying to identify the insignia that Zamora had seen on the object. The Project Blue Book archive contains many drawings, mostly of the version of the insignia with a half circle over the inverted V, with only a couple of small mentions of the inverted V with three lines insignia that would crop up in later reports. The exact design of the insignia is one of the biggest controversies surrounding the Zamora incident. Two particular designs are given, depending upon the source. Both contain an inverted V, with one including non-intersecting parallel horizontal lines and a half-circle shape around the top, and the other with three parallel horizontal lines intersecting the inverted V. The confusion about which insignia Zamora actually saw seems to stem from Sergeant Moody. He convinced both Zamora and the various civilian UFO organizations to describe an incorrect version of the insignia in their publications, so that if a true eyewitness were to come forward, they could use the true description of the insignia to verify the witness's story. While no such witness ever came forward, in the wake of the decision to publicly misidentify the insignia, exactly what Zamora saw on the craft has become muddled. The Project Blue Book files clearly treat the half-circle version as authentic and include correspondence from Captain Quintanilla inquiring with various companies and agencies about whether the half-circle insignia 
or a version thereof is used by any military unit or project. That search proved just as fruitless as the search for a craft matching what Samora described. The alternate insignia is present in only a couple of places in the Project Blue Book files, and always in connection with Dr. J. Allen Hynek's slightly later investigation. In the immediate aftermath of the incident, civilian UFO organizations such as APRO and NICAP printed the half-circle design as authentic. Beyond the initial investigation, Zabor himself never commented on the investigation in general, or the insignia specifically, though his wife did later say that the half-circle insignia was what Zamora saw. On the other side, audio recordings of Ned Lopez exist, and, though the quality is low, Lopez can be clearly heard, describing an insignia that matches with the three lines, not the half-circle design, and Dr. J. Allen Hynek was repeatedly quoted talking about the same insignia. Further, UFO researcher Ray Stanford, who was on the scene shortly after the incident occurred, and who published a book detailing his own investigation, holds to this day that the three lines insignia is the correct one. Lost in the discussion of what version of the insignia is correct is the question of why the insignia matters at all. Both have been known to the public for decades, and neither resulted in any identification with known military or civilian projects. What is more important than which insignia is the one Zamora saw is what sources use which version of the insignia. Project Blue Book files are full of the half-circle insignias, including on documents that were internal correspondence within the military. On its face, this would seem to lend credence to the idea that the half-circle insignia is the genuine insignia, because there would be no reason for Quintanilla or Moody to inquire with the made-up insignia, as that would be guaranteed to return no positive results. However, we also see the same insignia that is present on the Project Blue Book files included along with both APRO and NICAP publications, despite documentations that they had agreed to knowingly publicize the false insignia to allow witnesses who come forward to be verified. Given that many of these publications were made mere weeks after the incident, their publication of what the Project Blue Book files claim is the genuine insignia can only be explained as APRO and NICAP no longer holding to that agreement with Moody and publishing the genuine insignia. However, APRO at least was actively soliciting additional witnesses to come forward at the time they were publishing the supposed genuine insignia. All of this leads to the possible conclusion that the symbol with the three lines was, in fact, what Zamora witnessed, and that due to Moody actively spreading a similar but incorrect insignia under the guise of being able to identify the truthfulness of future witnesses. This, however, raises troubling questions concerning the accuracy and neutrality of the Project Blue Book documents, as they contain what appears to be a drawing and signature allegedly made by Zamora attesting to the arrow insignia's accuracy, and several examples of correspondence from Quintanilla requesting information on the arrow insignia. This would suggest that, at a minimum, there was no good faith effort to determine what the insignia represented, and perhaps an active disinformation campaign to bury the true insignia and convince the public that the incorrect one 
was in fact the correct one. Exactly why the insignia mattered so much, when both are known and neither identified, can only be speculated upon. While Sergeant Moody and Major Connor were conducting their investigation, word of the incident was beginning to spread, and it was becoming clear that the public was expecting an explanation for what had occurred. And under that immense pressure, Captain Keatonia tasked Dr. J. Allen Hynek with assisting in the investigation. He arrived late on the 28th, having been delayed by a flat tire, and then having been forced to hitchhike into Socorro to avoid further details. Dr. Hynek, assisted by Air Force personnel, located both Zamora and Chavez and conducted an interview with each of them. By this time, Zamora had begun to sour on the whole idea of investigating his sighting. It took Dr. Hynek considerable time and effort to gain his trust, owing to his perceived mistreatment by various Air Force personnel and his opinion that the local newspapers had misrepresented his comments on the incident. Given that the incident was initially investigated by the Army, the Air Force personnel referred to here can only be Sergeant Moody and Major Connor. More so than Chavez, Zamora was reluctant to speak with Dr. Hynek, and discuss with Chavez whether he should first speak with his priest for guidance, but Chavez convinced him that it would be okay to talk with Dr. Hynek. Fortunately, Hynek was able to gain Zamora's trust, and together with Chavez, they all went out to the scene of the incident together. Shortly thereafter, Ray Stanford of NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, arrived in town and began searching for Zamora. After traveling to the police station and convincing the radio operator to reach out to Zamora, Dr. Hynek overheard the transmission and convinced Zamora to invite Stanford out to the site with them. Zamora and Chavez then took the two investigators through the incident, pointing out where everything had occurred and conducting another investigation of the scene. By this time, the site had been picked over and trampled upon by the general public. As this investigation was occurring, Stanford noticed and was later able to secure possession of a broken rock, which he located inside one of the stone circles protecting the impressions, and which had markings and what appeared to be traces of metal scrapings on it. Stanford believed it possible that the rock had scraped against the object Zamora had sighted, and that the metal on the rock was from the object itself. He secreted the rock back home with him, and took the rock for testing at NASA, where he says that any and all evidence of metallic scrapings were removed from the rock prior to it being returned to him. His interviews completed, Hynek and the various samples taken by both himself and by Captain Holder's team departed Socorro for Wright Field in Ohio. Analysis of Dr. Hynek's samples would show no evidence of a propellant having been used to burn the plants and could only conclude that they had been subjected to high heat. That, however, may not tell the full story of the materials. Several years after the incident, Noted UFO researcher Dr. Stanton Friedman was approached by one Mary G. Mays, who claimed to have been present at the site of the Zamora incident the day after, and who worked on a small team that tested materials collected from the site. Friedman connected her with fellow UFO researcher Dr. James McDonald. 
Beyond confirming the details in the Project Blue Book files, she further noted that all the samples she had examined were not just burnt, but also unusually dry all the way through. Also, though she confirmed that none of the samples contained any kind of propellant, she said that there were two separate organic substances present that she was not able to identify. Finally, she said that she worked with the samples of fused sand taken from the site of the incident, which were roughly triangular in shape and tapered from 25 to 30 inches at the top down to just an inch at the bottom, and a quarter inch thick, which appeared to be caused by the soil having been exposed to intense heat. She said that all records of the research and samples had been collected by someone working for the government, and that she had been ordered not to discuss the results of the testing with anyone. While this incident comes to us secondhand, we can verify a few aspects of Mary G. May's life. She graduated with a master's degree from the biology department of the University of New Mexico in 1964, the same year as the Zamora incident, and her thesis was titled, quote, The Effects of Cobalt-60 on a Desert Root System. Though we have no independent corroboration that she worked on materials from the site of the Zamora incident, we know that she was a real person, was studying at a university 80 miles from Socorro in 1964, was an expert in effects of radiation on plants, went on to work in the nuclear field, and died in the early 2000s. This, like so much of Dr. Hynek's investigation, simply confirmed that something physical definitely occurred, and that the details as reported in newspapers and directly to Hynek by other Project Blue Book investigators were accurate. While these investigations were being conducted, word of the sighting began to spread throughout Socorro and around New Mexico. On April 28th, two local newspapers, the Socorro El Defensor Chieftain, and the Albuquerque Journal both carried reports of Zamora sighting, along with several other sightings of UFOs in the area around Socorro in the days around Zamora's sighting. All of the reports, except for one, were of a different object than the one witnessed by Lonnie himself. That one report, however, is quite interesting. The L Defensor Chieftain article reports two unnamed tourists as having sighted the same object that Zamora witnessed. In the Project Blue Book files, this lead was investigated, and it was found that Mr. Opal Grinder, the manager of the Whiting Brothers service station, was the source of the report, and that he spoke with the tourists when they stopped at the service station. He confirmed the veracity of the report to the government agent, with the exception that it was not two tourists but a single tourist who had spoken to him. Further attempts to locate this potential witness, both by the military and by civilian UFO organizations, proved fruitless. The full story of what Dr. Hynek documented comes to us in bits and pieces through the official Project Blue Book files. An unsigned handwritten note contained in the files summarized Dr. J. Allen Hynek's interview with Zamora and Chavez, including tantalizing details. In particular, it asserts that Zamora told Hynek that he initially believed that the object, quote, at first, that it seemed to him that there was somebody inside of the object trying to get out. 
This may refer to Zamora reporting hearing two or three loud thumps in addition to the roaring of the craft. Additionally, it refers to the figure sighted outside the craft as, quote, two objects in coveralls. It further asserts that Dr. Hynek, like all other investigators, believes Zamora to be incapable of a hoax. Additionally, the sheriff's office radio operator informed Captain Holder of approximately three reports called in of a blue flame or light in the area, but the times could not be determined as the calls were not properly logged. Ray Stanford of NICAP located two Socorro residents who reported hearing the same noise that Zamora heard at the start of his encounter, though they had not witnessed the bluish-orange column. Agent Burns of the FBI had also located multiple witnesses who had heard the noise, but none who would see the object or the flame. As the story spread over the subsequent weeks and months, Zamora became less and less willing to discuss what had occurred. This is hardly surprising. First and foremost, he had nothing more to share concerning the incident than what he had already said and had been reported publicly. At no point did his account of the events change, and although there are some minor discrepancies between the various versions of his account, particularly concerning the insignia and the timing of his radio calls to dispatch, the overall facts of the incident are not in dispute. No contradictory evidence was located that called his account into doubt. Everyone who knew him attested to his character and said that he could not possibly be making it up and that the very nature of his account makes it a potential misidentification of either natural a phenomenon or known aircraft virtually impossible. And even now, more than 50 years after the incident, there is no known aircraft that can do what Zamora described. In any UFO encounter, the idea that the entire incident is a hoax must be considered. Noted skeptic Philip J. Class, or Philip J. Ass as I like to call him, the only person known to have floated the hoax hypothesis, claimed that Zamora was part of a scheme on behalf of town mayor Holm Bursum Jr. to attract tourism to Socorro. The land on which the incident occurred was, in fact, owned by Mayor Bursum, and it was his dynamite shack that Zamora believed had exploded when he began his fateful investigation of the Column of Flame. However, aside from this very circumstantial piece of evidence, there doesn't appear to be any evidence that this was a hoax. In fact, the land on which the incident took place remains undeveloped to this day, and aside from a small roadside display erected decades later at the point where Zamora left the paved road, the town does not now, nor has it ever embraced the connection with the UFO phenomenon. Also, any hoax scenario must contend with the very nature of Zamora himself and the witnesses who arrived on the scene in the immediate aftermath of the incident. The Project Blue Book files do consider the hoax hypothesis and points out that, were this incident to be a hoax, it would be necessary for at a minimum Sergeant Zamora and Chavez and Agent Burns of the FBI to be in on the hoax and that all three would need to maintain the hoax for no personal gain despite the intense scrutiny that the incident would receive in the days, months, and years after it. Putting aside this determination, the possibility that Zamora hoaxed the incident, 
or was playing a prank, as called into question, when looking at the details given by those around Zamora in the minutes and hours after the incident. When Chavez arrived on the scene, just minutes after being called, he noticed that Zamora was pale and perspiring heavily, and that even if Zamora were potentially hoaxing or playing a prank, Chavez searched Zamora's car and confirmed he lacked the means to burn the vegetation or generate the indentations. Similarly, Agent Burns was on scene shortly after the incident in response to Sergeant Chavez's call and verified what Chavez said. Further, Zamora himself was an unimpeachable witness, as could be found. Beyond his occupation and the serious professional risk that talking about such a sighting could incur, everyone knew Zamora said that it was not in his nature to make up such an encounter. He was by all descriptions a serious, straight-laced person who was not prone to practical jokes or flights of fancy. That he himself did not report the incident and would only talk about it after persuasion only adds his credibility on this. The oft-repeated quote about the incident preventing Zamora from reaching his daily ticket quota is a perfect encapsulation of his character. Further, despite Zamora's complete unwillingness to discuss the matter, even in private, he would eventually be ridiculed to such a degree by numerous folks who he interacted with as a police officer that he felt he had no choice but to retire from a job that, by all accounts, he loved to take a job managing the city's landfill instead. That he would hold on to a fabricated story, and that a fellow officer and an FBI agent would also participate in a hoax, absolutely begs belief. From this it is obvious that, at a minimum, Zamora was truthfully relating what he saw, or at least what he believed he saw. This leaves open the possibility that the incident was a hoax of some kind, but that Zamora was not in on it, and was being duped. This theory was first proposed by astronomer Donald Menzel. Menzel proposed that students from the nearby high school wanted to get back at Zamora, presumably for something he had done in the course of his duties as a police officer. Also, Zamora is home to the New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology, and a variation on this theory holds that what Zamora saw was a prank on him by a group of students from the college, as college students are noted for their love of pranks. In favor of this theory, investigators noted that adjacent to the site of the incident, there was an aircraft boneyard. The theory goes that students used materials from various junked aircraft to create something that could fool Zamora into thinking that he had seen a UFO. However, the mechanism by which college students could have created a large, metallic-looking object, then have it depart silently at a rate of speed, all without being observed by Zamora, or any evidence of their prank being found locally, or in the search by the military, cannot be explained. The prank hypothesis also then needs to account for the mechanism to create this column of flame, being dismantled in the short time between Zamora trying to get his car up the incline onto the gravel path, and Zamora arriving on scene just a couple minutes later, all without leaving tracks. The evidence for this appears to be the fact that there's an aircraft boneyard close to the site of the incident, and that college kids love pranks. 
The theory does not explain the mechanism that generated the flame and noise, nor how the students managed to remain hidden from Zamora's view in the wide open expanse of desert, nor how they carted the object away without leaving any marks or even footprints in a matter of minutes, nor how they made the object hover. It must also be stated that when the object departed, it did so against the wind, and at a speed which lighter-than-air crafts still cannot attain. Menzel later backed off his theory that this was a prank, instead claiming that Zamora had misidentified a dust devil, because that's even fucking better. Like Menzel, a few different debunkers have, at various times, proposed that what Zamora witnessed could be explained by a misidentification of natural phenomena. Philip J. Ass, whose hoax theory was previously mentioned, initially proposed that what Zamora saw in the Arroyo that day was the ball lightning, which class asserted could explain nearly all UFO encounters, mm-hmm. when this possibility was thoroughly debunked by Dr. James E. MacDonald, only then did class fall back on the previously stated hoax hypothesis. In a reverse of Ass's thinking on the Zamora incident, after Donald Menzel moved away from his hoax hypothesis, he then switched to claiming that Zamora had misidentified a dust devil. Get yourself a fucking dustbuster. Exactly how a dust devil could manifest as two figures in white coveralls, a large metallic object, burnt vegetation, or leave such small and deep impressions on the ground is, perhaps, obviously left unstated by Menzel. His evidence in support of the theory appears to be that it was windy at the time of the incident. Finally, skeptic Stuart Campbell claimed that the sighting was, quote, almost certainly a mirage of cannabis. This one is particularly hard to explain, as exactly what a mirage of cannabis entails is left unexplained, either by Campbell or by any other astronomer. In fact, it would seem that the only time anyone had ever suggested a mirage of cannabis to explain anything is from Stuart Campbell in explaining both the Zamora incident and the Cash Landum incident. This is like an atmospheric eddy all over again. If, as the phrase, mirage of cannabis, would imply, Campbell is asserting that some combination of atmospheric phenomenon and astronomical alignment put the star Canopus into exactly the right position for Zamora to observe it being significantly larger in the sky than it would normally appear. That is, at least, something that can be addressed. First, and perhaps most damning to the hypothesis, the incident took place about two hours prior to sunset, in clear and sunny conditions. Even if it were possible for the star Canopus to appear in the sky, in such a way as to appear to be a large, metallic object, one must then account for the fact that Zabora observed the object from two separate angles. First, down the length of the arroyo, then from above the arroyo, looking down. Stars rarely, if ever, descend into arroyos, burn vegetation, or leave impressions in the soil. Why swamp gas and not mirage of cannabis is a famous jokey UFO explanation, I'll never know. Much like the hoax hypothesis, 
that the experiencer was in some way either hallucinating or misremembering events must always be considered when analyzing UFO reports. This theory was proposed because of the weakness of the previous theories and does not appear to be championed by any particular debunker. It was considered and dismissed by the Project Blue Book team. The theory goes that Zamora, whether intentionally or unintentionally, was not of sound mind during the encounter, and that his mind either invented the whole incident or distorted natural phenomena. Running against this theory is that within just a couple of minutes of the incident, Sergeant Chavez was on the scene and interacting with Zamora. He reported that although Zamora was obviously shaken, he was lucid and able to answer questions. That Sergeant Chavez would miss the signs of Zamora having lost touch with reality begs belief, as would the fact that numerous military and other investigators who talked with Zamora in the hour or two after the incident missed this as well. This theory was briefly mentioned by Dr. J. Allen Hynek in the Project Blue Book Files, before being immediately discarded on the strength of the physical evidence, along with the reports of those who interacted with Zamora, in the immediate aftermath of the incident. It does not appear to have been proposed by any investigators in the intervening time. The reliability of Zamora as a witness, the quick and thorough investigation of the scene by third parties, and their examination of the physical evidence has led most investigators, both civilian and military, to conclude that Zamora witnessed a physical craft of some kind, this was even seemingly acknowledged by the government in response to a FOIA request, though with an explicit denial that there is any evidence that the craft was extraterrestrial. While Project Blue Book did not reach an official conclusion regarding what Zamora witnessed, all available documents clearly indicate that they believe Zamora witnessed a physical craft of some variety and that it was from a secret U.S. military project. At one point, Quintanilla asserts that if the military were to show the craft to the public and demonstrate that it could do what Zamora had witnessed, that it would go a long way to reducing UFO interest in general. That demonstration, obviously, never occurred. It must further be stated that, even today, there are no known craft capable of performing the maneuvers that Zamora described. All known craft capable of vertical flight are exceptionally noisy while doing so. Whether rotary wing aircraft like helicopters, or VTOL jets such as the Harrier or F-35B, none are capable of silent operation. Further, at the time of the incident, the Harrier jump jet, certainly the most famous of the VTOL jets, was still on the drawing board. Even when it took its first flights two years after the Zamora incident, it would have been at the edge of its capabilities to move vertically and at the speed and across the distance that Zamora observed. And as anyone who has been near an operating jet can attest, it is anything but silent. There are hints in the government response that what Zamora saw may have been known to them and that it may have, in fact, been part of a secret government project. In particular, the involvement of Sergeant Moody in the investigation from the beginning 
and misinformation given to the various civilian organizations concerning Moody's previous assignment before the investigation began to raise questions whose only plausible explanation is that he was engaging in an active cover-up. Upon arrival in Socorro just a couple days after the incident, civilian UFO researchers Jim and Coral Lorenzen, founders of APRO, went to the local police station where they met Sergeant Moody. Without knowing that the Lorenzens were UFO investigators, they had a brief chat where Sergeant Moody identified himself as being stationed at Wright-Patterson, and in a separate notation, later in their report, Jim Lorenzen remarked on him being from back east. This is broadly accurate, as Project Blue Book was based out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, but he neglected to mention to anyone that at the time of the incident, he was stationed in New Mexico already with Project Cloud Gap at Kirtland Air Force Base near Albuquerque, roughly 80 miles north of Socorro. Why Sergeant Moody would choose to identify himself as being sent from a location several states away rather than the truth which is that he was only 80 miles away at Kirtland Air Force Base, is difficult to reconcile. Also difficult to reconcile is exactly why one of only five people currently working on Project Blue Book was, at the time of the incident, only a short distance away, on temporary duty with Project Cloud Gap. Project Cloud Gap was a classified project whose purpose was to Quote, test the technical feasibility of potential arms control and disarmament measures, end quote, involving nuclear weapons. Exactly what the project entailed is still mostly classified, but the basics seem to be that it sought to determine whether the Soviets could evade nuclear disarmament agreements and secretly keep nuclear weapons that they had claimed to have dismantled as well as to determine if the Soviets could test nuclear weapons underground without being detected. The culmination of the project appears to address the former quite thoroughly. Project Cloud Gap's Field Test 34 was conducted in mid-1967 at four sites and involved inspectors trying to verify the destruction of nuclear weapons, while another team tries to evade the inspectors and keep weapons while getting the inspectors to certify that they were being destroyed. These results have been declassified, but many other documents related to Project Cloud Gap remain classified to this day. The answer, unrelated to the Zamora incident, is that the risk of the deception being detected was high. However, not every exercise involved carefully prepared labs and teams trying to dismantle nuclear weapons. The project was known to have involved the movement of inspection teams via helicopters around inspection areas, which may be literally hundreds of square miles. There are mentions from outside the Project Blue Book files that Project Cloud Gap included research into how large areas could be quickly searched for hidden nuclear weapons, though whether any of that research was put into practice is not available in any declassified Project Cloud Gap documents. And we do know that Project Cloud Gap was active on the day in question. According to a note in the Project Blue Book files, they were operating approximately 100 miles away from Socorro. 
In fact, the existing Project Blue Book documents do offer a clue in an oddly specific denial from Colonel Kenneth A. Young with Project Cloud Gap to Captain Quintanilla. Quote, Cloud Gap personnel do not have any equipment nor special clothing which could possibly be related to the description provided by police officer Lonnie Zamora. End quote. The mention of special clothing is particularly interesting, given that the similarity between the white overalls witnessed by Zamora and the so-called, quote, clean room suit worn by workers in a nuclear containment room or building, though it must be acknowledged that clean room suits are used in a wide variety of other sensitive manufacturing environments as well. If the true nature of the object was known to Sergeant Moody via his involvement with Project Cloud Gap, one could hardly ask for a better investigator to be assigned to the case if the purpose of the investigation was to effect a cover-up. Also, Sergeant Moody was known to clash with Dr. J. Allen Hynek. As Hynek felt that Sergeant Moody had already decided that UFOs were nothing and worked backwards from there. In particular... Moody's attempts to muddy the waters around the insignia that Zamora cited must be examined in light of his involvement with Project Cloud Gap. The Project Blue Book documents indicate that Quintanilla spent considerable effort requiring with various defense contractors and departments attempting to identify the insignia. Yet, as we talked about earlier, there is reason to believe that the drawings of the insignia that litter the Project Blue Book files are not what Zamora actually saw, with the true insignia being willingly kept secret not just by Moody and Blue Book, but by civilian UFO organizations that he persuaded to publish knowingly incorrect information under the guise of being able to identify hoaxers. If the insignia is, as some believe, the inverted V with three parallel horizontal lines and not the domed insignia with an inverted V and a line under it, then the entirety of the Blue Book papers must be regarded with suspicion. Whether Quintanilla knowingly participated in sending the incorrect insignia far and wide cannot be known with certainty, but it begs belief that Booty would not inform Quintanilla of his deception and allow Quintanilla to inquire about a false insignia. If the object that Zamora witnessed was indeed part of a secret military project to monitor Soviet nuclear weapons between Captain Quintanilla and Sergeant Moody, it would be a simple matter to either not follow any line of inquiry that would lead to Project Cloud Gap, or whatever project was responsible for the craft, or to knowingly inquire with information that was just false enough to provide the answers they were looking for. However, if the hypothesis that this was a secret military aircraft is true, it then raises an even more difficult problem. While theoretical mechanisms of silent flight, heavier than air flight, have been proposed, none have been experimentally verified, let alone practically implemented to an, into a known craft. And given that the Zamora incident took place 55 years ago, how do we still not have any aircraft that can do what Zamora described? It should also be noted that there is no reason to necessarily assume that it was indeed a terrestrial craft, that it was under the control of American pilots, 
Any suggestion that the craft was terrestrial must necessarily consider what countries at the time possessed at least a theoretical ability to deploy a state-of-the-art aircraft into the skies above Socorro, New Mexico. Given the highly publicized Soviet explanation for the Roswell incident offered by Annie Jacobson in Area 51, an uncensored history of America's top-secret military base, it is no more outlandish to say that the Zamora incident may have a similar explanation. Even if one accepts that it was a terrestrial craft, given the difficulties that are experienced in deploying and operating craft away from dedicated military facilities, it must be regarded as far less likely that it was Soviet than American. Given the state of technology in 1964, it is no less unreasonable to assume that the craft may have been Soviet in origin. In the area around Socorro to gather information on any one of the myriad of classified projects operating in the area, perhaps even Project Cloudgap itself. However, all of this butts up against the simple reality. 55 years later, no known aircraft does what Zamora witnessed, and the theoretical framework for such an aircraft is more in the realm of science fiction than science fact. In 1926, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes, saying in The Adventure of the Blanche Soldier, quote, When you have eliminated all which is impossible, then whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And it is here with the last theory that we must reckon with that same idea. More than anything else, the staying power of the Zamora incident is the way that it defies conventional explanation. Zamora cannot be dismissed as a hoaxer or exaggerator, nor can what he described be attributed to hallucination or prank. That there was a physical object in that arroyo just south of Socorro on April 24, 1964 cannot reasonably be disputed nor can it reasonably be disputed that it behaved in a way that we could not replicate today, let alone with 1964 technology. From these undeniable facts, we must reckon with the conclusion that either such technology has existed since at least 1964, but has been successfully hidden from the general public for more than 50 years, or that such technology is not in the control of any government or military and thus could only be under the control of something else, who occasionally visit us for purposes known only to themselves. In asking ourselves which is true, it is impossible not to confront just how truly incredible either conclusion would be. The Zamora incident is frequently spoken of by proponents of the extraterrestrial and extra-dimensional hypotheses as some of the best evidence for alien contact. In particular, Dr. J. Allen Hynek would cite the Zamora incident as one which played a pivotal role in his conversation from a debunker to a believer. Further, as Dr. Hynek observed, UFO sightings were quite common then, and they continue to be common to this day. While many can be explained away, there are some that, like the Zamora incident, resist mundane explanation. 
Although we do not know anything about the propulsion method of the craft, a few details can be gained from Zamora's description. Due to the prevailing winds of the day of the incident, the direction unto which the craft departed, and the speed at which it departed, the object must have included some form of propulsion. An unpowered object, such as we would see with a hot air balloon, could not make the maneuvers that it did. Also barring significant and inexplicable error in description on the part of Zamora, the object itself would not seem to be capable of aerodynamic flight. However, just because something is incapable of aerodynamic flight does not mean that it can't fly. The bumblebee is similarly incapable of aerodynamic flight, but millions of bees take flight every day. But unlike our honey-producing friends, the object that Zamora observed did not have wings, nor did it, for that matter, appear to have any moving parts at all. For known modes of flight, this leaves only some variety of either jet or rocket as possibilities. At the time of the Zamora incident, there was intense research into various methods of vertical takeoff. The previously mentioned Harrier jump jet was under development and would make its first flight only a couple of years after the Zamora sighting. The same year as the Harrier's first flight, the Apollo lunar module landed on and then took off from the surface of the moon. Indeed, many investigators, including those from Project Blue Book, noted the immediate similarities between what Zamora witnessed and the lunar modules used in the Apollo program, then under development. Much time and energy is spent by Project Blue Book investigators trying to determine which of the roughly one dozen lunar modules, then under development, was seen that day. But all projects responded that their craft was not responsible for what Zamora had witnessed. On the surface, a lost lunar module seems like a really good fit. The physical similarities, in particular the landing gear, that left the impressions on the ground, are not themselves particularly unusual. In fact, their very terrestrial nature is what makes them so powerful. They are conclusive evidence that, regardless of what the object was, that there was a physical object present which left the marks. However, as much as the Zamora incident is lauded for the amount of physical evidence generated, it is equally important for what physical evidence was not present. From the depth of the indentations left by the object, we know that it must have weighed hundreds of pounds, yet the area immediately underneath it included only patchy areas of burnt vegetation, with some vegetation that would have been in the direct path of any jet a rocket engine exhaust remaining entirely unburned. And what vegetation was burned was cold to the touch in just a few minutes after the object departed. The vegetation samples taken by Dr. J. Allen Hynek showed no traces of any accelerant, which would be expected had a rocket engine fired to lift the craft off the ground. Further, although the object was reported by Zamora to have made a loud, roaring noise, and to have generated smoke and flame underneath. That only continued for a short time. Zamora reported that the object hovered silently for several seconds before moving off just as silently, passing directly over the nearby dynamite shack that Zamora had initially feared 
responsible for the noise and bluish-orange flame that began his encounter. This would seem to imply that, though the object may have used some variety of conventional propulsion to initially lift off, it was not operating as either a rocket or a jet engine while it moved out of view. Also notable at this time is the absence of ground disturbance as the object move off. Any kind of jet or rocket would kick up a large quantity of dust, moving at such a low altitude across such dry and sandy soil. All of this, however, ignores a very basic fact about rocket and jet engines. They are incredibly noisy. As anyone who has ever been near even idling jet engines can attest, it would be impossible for any craft to be silent while operating a jet or rocket engine. And yet Zamora observed the object silently for several seconds and move at hundreds of miles an hour with the same silence. Descriptions of craft operating in such a way are not just the realm of science fiction. Many UFO encounters feature craft and occupants matching what Zamora described. In particular, one incident investigated by Bertold E. Schwartz, the case of Gary Wilcox, a dairy farmer from Newark Valley, New York, who encountered an object strikingly similar to the one that Zamora witnessed. Like Zamora, Wilcox was going about his day normally. For Wilcox, this day included spreading manure over one of his fields, when around 10 a.m., something unexpected caught his eye near the tree line of some nearby woods. As he drove his tractor over to investigate, he saw, quote, a white or shining object above the field, just on the inside of the edge of the woods, end quote, which he initially thought might be a fuel tank from an airplane. He drove his tractor up to about a hundred yards away, then got down to investigate closer. The object was roughly 20 feet long, 16 feet wide, and 4 feet tall. It was not resting on the ground, but Wilcox could not see any legs or landing gear. It had no obvious seams or rivets. Unsure of what he was looking at, he, quote, thumped it pretty hard with his fist and even gave it a kick or two. When he held his hand to it, there was no vibration, and it was not unusually warm or cold. Then two men, around four feet tall, emerged from underneath the object. They each were carrying a small tray which appeared to be made of the same material as the object, on which rested samples of soil and vegetation alfalfa roots, soil, leaves, and brush. They were wearing white or metallic overalls, which also seems to be made of the same metal as the craft. For several minutes, neither Wilcox nor the beings said anything. They just stood there watching each other. Later, Wilcox would admit that he was afraid to say anything because... He thought that some kind of trick was being played on him. But eventually, one of them seemed to say, Don't be alarmed. We have spoken to people before. Wilcox explained, quote, Their voices did not sound like a voice I could describe. 
I could understand what was said, but cannot tell whether they were speaking English or not. He later recalled that the sound seemed to be coming from their chest. Tentatively, Wilcox continued the conversation. They asked about farming, and then explained to the beings what he was doing, the function of the various farm implements, even what manure was. They conversed for around two hours, and during that time, the beings told him that they had been observing him for some time and that they were greatly interested in organic substances because Mars, their home planet, was not good for growing anything. They also made an untimely incorrect prediction that two astronauts, Gus Grissom and John Glenn, and two unnamed cosmonauts would die that year from exposure to something in space. Can't go wrong with a good false prediction during an alien encounter, I guess. As the conversation came to a close, Wilcox asked the beings if he could go with them, which they declined because they said their atmosphere was too thin and that Wilcox would not be able to breathe. By way of explanation, the beings volunteered that they preferred areas with clean air, as the pollutants from automobiles interfered with their craft. Wilcox then remembered that they had asked him earlier about fertilizer, and he offered to go get them a bag to take with them, but they declined to wait for him to do so. The beings then entered their craft, and, with a noise that sounded reminiscent of an idling car engine that quickly turned to silence, it took off and slowly moved north until shortly thereafter Wilcox lost sight of it. Later that day, he retrieved one of the 75-pound bags of fertilizer and left it near a tree close to where he had conversed with the beings. The next morning, the bag of fertilizer was gone. Now, you may be asking why, out of all of the incidents of UFO contact, this particular incident stands out. Well, there's the obvious similarities between the two craft. Aluminum-colored lodging-shaped craft of approximately the same size. There's the description of the short occupants wearing white coveralls. There's the lack of obvious propulsion while the crafts move. Oh, and one more thing. The Wilcox incident also took place on the morning of April 24th, 1964, just a few hours before Zamora sighting. This episode was written and researched by our lead researcher, Rory, and was recorded by me. A huge thanks goes to Rory for putting in the time on this one. He researched the fuck out of this case for months. And as you can tell by how meticulously detailed this episode is, um, we did that on purpose. We wanted to go as deep as we could on this episode because, one, this case has meant so much to me to begin with. But secondly, it deserved to be scrutinized as closely as possible. So special thanks to him. He knocked it out of the park with this one. We are still accepting entries for our big book giveaway. Either leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or recommend the show on whatever form of social media you choose. Take a screenshot and send it to ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. Entries are open until February 21st. For more links to our social media profiles, episodes, Patreon page, and Tee Public Store, 
Head on over to OurStrangeSkies.com to find out more. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies, or in an arroyo in New Mexico. In gray we trust.